Amen. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. If you're able to remain standing, please feel free. If you cannot, feel free to sit down as well. Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting, and he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? Then he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs of water their father's flocks. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to rule their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah to his daughter to Moses. And she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel And God acknowledged them. This is the word of the living Christ, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Now, O Lord, we ask that by your Spirit, you would incline our hearts to hear, enlarge our minds. We pray that you would grow us this day through your word, and as We've already prayed. We pray for the conversion of any sitting under the word of Christ this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 11 of Exodus chapter 2 says, When Moses was grown. When Moses was grown, he went out to his brethren, to his brothers and sisters. Now, Acts chapter 7, verse 23, we read of the same story, this time with interpretation, as it were, through the mouth of Stephen, as he's giving testimony to the plan of God to save people from every nation and tribe and tongue. And there, Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 23, tells us that what is meant in Exodus 2, verse 11, when Moses was grown, is that he was 40 years old. He'd lived basically a generation And it's at this time that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. This morning, brothers and sisters, I want us to walk through this text 
with two simple things in mind, and then we'll close with four lessons of how we can apply this to our lives. As we look at this text, though, I want you to keep in mind the call to remember who we are as God's people. Remember who we are. But secondly, towards the end of our text, I want you to see that we are remembered in God's covenant. So we're to remember who we are. But at the end of this text, we'll see that God's people are remembered by God according to his covenant. We'll seek to apply these things to our lives. But first, let's walk through the text together, remembering who you are. In verse 11, notice that the text says, He went out to his brethren, his brothers and sisters. Now, boys and girls, surely Moses knew about the Hebrews by now. He knew about their service as slaves. He was, if you recall, living in Pharaoh's house as really the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But we're told that at a particular moment in time, he rises to the occasion to shepherd God's covenant people. That ought to sound familiar to us. For there will come another shepherd who at a particular period in time will rise to minister the covenant to God's people. Jesus will be his name. But here he remembers, as it were, who he is because he goes out to his brethren. Moses, after growing up in Egypt with the privilege of a king's son, recognizes who his true family is. It's not meant to say that he's ungrateful in God's providence for giving him an education, for giving him the comforts of living in Pharaoh's house, but he's identifying with his people. Unless we think that this is just some kind of ethnic identification, you know, getting back to your roots kind of thing, we're meant to understand, as we'll see through the pages of Scripture in just a moment, that Moses is identifying with his people. is not just saying, well, hey, I'm a Hebrew, they're Egyptian, let me get back to my roots. It's Moses specifically choosing to follow the God of the covenant that he made with Abraham. Later on, as we'll see in more detail later, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, we're told about this event. And there, the preacher of Hebrews says... That in Moses rising up and taking notice of the burdens of his people, and as we'll see through this text, continually identifying with God's covenant people. The preacher of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 11.25, that Moses was choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. This wasn't first about identifying with ethnicity. This was about choosing the true and living God and his promises to his people. The early church father Ambrose in the 300s, commenting on this story, says this, Moses slew an Egyptian and became a fugitive from the land of Egypt so as to avoid the king of that land. But he would not have slain the Egyptian if he had not first destroyed in himself the Egypt of spiritual wickedness and had not relinquished the luxuries and honors of the king's palace, 
Ambrose is picking up on the fact that, as the writer of Hebrews says, Moses is remembering who he is. His heart is set upon God, upon Yahweh, and Yahweh's promises. And we do deal with an interesting story next, don't we, boys and girls? Because Moses kills a man. Look at verse 12. So he looked this way and that way. Why is he looking this way and that way? Well, the end of verse 11 says, He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Now, if you live 40 years in Pharaoh's house, why wouldn't the Egyptians be your brethren? No, all throughout this passage, we're meant to see in many different ways that Moses is identifying with the covenant people of God. Now, we're faced with a little dilemma here, aren't we? As we'll see through Moses in just a few chapters, the moral law of God has always been that we do not kill, we do not murder. And scholars differ on what we're to make of Moses killing an Egyptian. There are basically three main views. Some believe, quite plain and simple, that Moses committed murder. That Moses is a murderer. Secondly, some believe that Moses is protecting the life of the Hebrew. After all, the Egyptian is harming him. He's offering self-defense. Some people, thirdly, however, think that Moses has begun, as verse 11 says, to stand up as the deliverer of God's people. And as the deliverer of God's people, acting in a role as deliverer, he's beginning to deliver them from the oppression of slavery. Three different options. I think our brother Augustine in the early 400s is pretty spot on when he comments on this. He says, concerning Moses' deed when he killed the Egyptian to defend his brethren, the question was whether his role in that deed was praiseworthy insofar as he admitted his sin, just as the richness of the earth, even before useful seeds are planted, is often praised for a growth of plants, even if they are useless. Or perhaps the deed itself should be justified. But to do so does not seem right. For up to that point, Moses has no legitimate authority. Neither authority that he received from God, nor authority ordained by human society. But, but still, as Stephen says in the Acts of the Apostles, Moses thought that his brethren understood that God would bring them salvation through him. So that by this testimony... It appeared that Moses could dare to do this because he was already called by God to act. But Scripture is silent on this point. You see what Augustine's doing? <laughs> we could think about it in these ways. But then he takes us, as we've already done this morning once, to Acts chapter 7 for a little more information. Turn there with me. Acts chapter 7. Just listen to a few verses from Stephen's famous sermon. Boys and girls, you remember many, many, many years later, Jesus will come and he will die for the sins of the people who trust in him. He'll be raised and the gospel will be offered to any who have ears to hear. Trust in Christ. Have faith in him. And this gospel is sent out to the world and Stephen is the first that we know of to die for it. He's giving his defense, so he's telling the whole story of the Bible. And in Acts chapter 7, we read this. Acts chapter 7, verse 24. 
And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Notice what Stephen is doing. He's adding a little credence to the thought that part of what's happening for Moses as Moses takes action is that Moses is rising up as a kind of deliverer of God's people. The Puritan Matthew Poole commenting on Exodus chapter 2 lists a variety of options and then leans towards Moses being innocent. Whereas, for instance, a modern reform scholar like T.D. Alexander views Moses as taking action into his own hands, kind of misguided at this point in the journey. So there are options on the table. But the ultimate outcome that we are to see is that in the end, this act and what happens next sends Moses, as it were, into exile. Notice in verse 13, And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting, and he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? We've read of this. But notice what happens. Moses fears and says, Surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard the matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh. So now, Moses... Fearing for his life at the hand of Pharaoh, flees. And we find Moses in an interesting spot. Notice the last few words of verse 15. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now that seems to be a strange detail, doesn't it? I mean, we're... He's fleeing. We've got the possibility that he's going to be harmed by Pharaoh. He's worried about being found out. At the end of verse 15, we read, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he sits down by a well. Scholars have pointed out that this is a regular theme throughout Scripture. Rebecca was met at a well. Rachel was met at a well. Moses here is rescuing women at a well. <laughs> I wonder if there'll be anyone else who will rescue a woman at a well. Jesus. You remember the Samaritan woman. He told me everything I'd ever done. You've got to come here, this man by the well. You see, as we've said before already, Moses' story, the story of the Exodus, is full of pictures of Christ, the true Savior. If you're new to the things of the Bible, Moses is an important man. Moses is a good man. Moses is used of God in an old covenant sense in the Old Testament to bring God's plan to bear. But ultimately, Moses is just one of many people that gets us to Christ, Jesus, who is the true Savior and deliverer of God's people. 
It's not Moses that I want you to meet today, friend. It's Jesus. Well, he sits down by the well. You heard me read of the interaction. Priest of Midian had seven daughters. Interesting number, seven. It's all over the scriptures. They come to draw water, and the shepherds there did to them what often shepherds would do. They gave the women a hard time. They drove them away. But Moses stands up as a deliverer, if you will, and he waters the flocks of these women. So, of course, perhaps wanting proper hospitality and reward to be offered to the man who saved his daughters, their father says, where is the Egyptian? Bring him here. He must feast with us. And by the end of this narrative, in verse 22, Moses is now married to one of them, Zipporah, and Moses bears a son, or has a son. She bears the son, but Moses has a son. And notice the name, Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now, you may be thinking, as we walk through this story, there's the killing of the Egyptian, there's the fleeing of Pharaoh, sitting down by a well, getting a wife, having a child. It sounds like life is moving on. (laughs) But let's just walk back through the details. Over and over and over, Moses is, is remembering who he is. He stands up at a particular period of time and says, those are my people, not Pharaoh's house. Those are my people. He names his own son by the name of one who says, I've been a stranger in a foreign land. Midian, Egypt, they're not my home. So all of the details over and over and over, and even Moses, as it were, the, the grandson of a king, if you will, is caring about the burdens of his people. Moses remembers who he truly is. All throughout this narrative, we're meant to see that Moses is identifying with his people, with the people of God's covenant, with God's people. And as the writer of Hebrews says, he is pursuing Christ and not the pleasures and sins of Egypt. How tempting would it have been to stay comfortable in Pharaoh's palace? But a greater king, a greater kingdom, and a greater call was before him. That's really your story, friend. You live in the Egypt of this world, you live in the Egypt of sin. Is God really your king? And is God's people really your people? Well, we've seen firstly then that we are to remember who we are. Moses remembers who he is. But secondly, we see at the end of this narrative that God's people are remembered in God's covenant. Look what happens next. We're given some fast forwarding of details. About 40 years will pass here, the scripture tells us. Verse 23, now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out. Their groaning 
And Moses' ear hears them in verse 11. Here they're pictured as groaning, and who hears them? They're groaning because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Now, it's important to understand that when we read the Bible, we should interpret the Bible as a whole. The Bible makes clear that God knows all things. So when we read God remembers his covenant, we aren't to think that God had forgotten, that he was slack or slow in his promises, or that somehow his knowledge was incomplete. No, this is a a way of saying, as the groaning of God's people come up to the ears of God, it is filtered through God's very promise to them. And what was this covenant that he made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob? We won't read all the verses, but it's simply this. Genesis 12, Abraham, in you and in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Blessing will come through you. You will have a land and a family. And from this family living in this land will come the blessing of the world, the Messiah. And so Abraham begins the process following the covenant sign of the Abrahamic covenant. All the males are circumcised in their flesh. Day by day, they are continually reminded of what? It's from us that God will bless the nations. How are they going to bless the nations if they're slaves in Egypt? How will Messiah come when they're living under rulers who want to kill the seed? God hears their groaning, but he hears them with a faithful, unchanging word of promise. I wonder if you think about that when you pray in your own groanings of life. Perhaps you pray about your own sinfulness. Will God leave me forever wrestling with sin? Maybe It's a little bit more broad than that. Maybe you see the sin of the world, the sin of your family, the struggles of your own family, and you think to yourself, will God leave us here? If you are in covenant with God through Christ, He hears you and remembers you in His covenant of grace. See, you're a covenant member now, Christian. You're a member of the new covenant. We keep talking about it because it's so important. Covenant shows up over and over and over in Exodus. But the old covenant will ultimately be fulfilled and find its greatest expression in the new covenant, the covenant of grace, whereby in Christ, the irrevocable promise of God through Christ to everyone who is united to Christ is that you will know me, I will be your God, and I will not remember your sins anymore. And every Lord's Day, we gather at this table as a regular sign that God hears us and knows us and receives us by way of covenant. Now notice specifically what the text says. I don't know if you noticed all the words. Just just in verse 24. Let me read it with a little bit of emphasis. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant 
God looked upon the children of Israel. Let's look at these three things. Verse 24, God heard their groaning. A couple chapters later, we'll see this in Exodus 6, verse 15. There we read of the people of God calling out in Exodus 6. But how many of the Psalms are filled with expressions? Psalm 105.8. Or how about that glorious Psalm? I love the Lord because He heard my cry. He was attentive to my cries for mercy. God hears the groanings of His people. Yes, much of our groaning is mixed and tainted with sin. Some of it's selfish. Sometimes we groan over things that we actually shouldn't be groaning over. Our groaning is really sinful discontentment. Our groaning is rebellion. Our our groaning is hatred. Doubt. Idolatry. Sometimes our, our groaning, even as it's tainted with sin, it's a groaning out of a heart that's been changed. How long, O Lord? You don't aimlessly cry out to God for completed salvation. Ever. Without God not only hearing you, but remembering his covenant. He hears, but secondly, God remembers his covenant. We won't turn there, but Genesis 15, verse 14 I will bring you out, your people out, Abraham, multiple generations. I will bring them out and I will give them a land. Genesis 46, 4. God remembers his covenant promises. But also the text says God acknowledged them. We get a picture of this, don't we? The very next chapter, Exodus 3, verse 7. We'll see, Lord willing, next week when the Lord says to Moses, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Don't don't, don't you just want to stop there for just a few moments and linger on those last five words? I know their sorrows. Over and over and over through the pages of Scripture, God declares in one way or another that He knows the sorrows of His people. He knows your sorrows, believer, whatever they may be. Verse 8, chapter 3. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land to a land flowing with milk and honey. There's the promise again, isn't it? Remember the Abrahamic covenant. Family and land so that the Christ will come through you. The promise is reiterated here. Our salvation, in one sense, is based in the rock-solid covenant of God. So we've seen in this text that we are to remember who we are. That the fleeting pleasures of Egypt, of this world, 
It's not our home. But rather, we are to be, as it were, remembering who we are in Christ. And as we do, we need to remember and be assured that God remembers us in His covenant. Now, this is not to say that all of the people who were groaning will find eternal salvation. All throughout the history of the Old Testament, there are, is a mixed group. Sometimes they all physically die, but some of them had believed. They faced physical death. Some of them were saved by the Christ to come. Other times, many of them are rescued. Temporally, they're rescued. But only some of them have true saving faith. This is the way the old covenant story works as it gets us to Christ. They find salvation, which is a picture for us. Well, what lessons can we learn as we close? How do we think about applying this to our lives? I mean, this, after all, is Moses thousands of years ago. He's not the Savior. What kind of lessons do we learn? Well, let me give you just four. The first is this. Don't let the riches and pleasures of this world keep you from identifying with Christ. Again, how easy would it have been for Moses to stay comfortably out of the fray of, Egypt, of the, the slavery of the Hebrews to the Egyptians? Undoubtedly, boys and girls, the food was better in Pharaoh's house than it was in the camps of the Hebrews. Undoubtedly, the medicine was better. The games were more fun. The days were filled with more rest. Everything, physically speaking, perhaps emotionally speaking, would have been better in Pharaoh's house. And to one degree, that's the way that it is oftentimes in the Christian life. The pleasures of this world seem just better than what the life of faith offers. Now, lest we think this is a moral lesson that doesn't have a, a biblical basis, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, there we read these words. Hebrews 11, verse 24, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And then notice the next phrase. I'm going to talk about how to put your Bible together. Notice verse 26 of Hebrews 11. Esteeming the reproach of Christ. The stuff in Exodus 2 is ultimately about Christ. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Brothers and sisters, the preacher of Hebrews is offering passing commentary on Exodus. What is he saying? What Moses was doing in forsaking the fleeting pleasures of Egypt is embracing the reproach of Christ, being identified with the Messiah. In Moses' instant, it would be the Messiah to come, the Christ to come. For us, it's the Christ who already has come. But Moses is our brother in the faith. And he sets for us an example. 
The riches of Egypt, the passing pleasures of this world, they're nothing, they're nothing compared to the reward that is to come. They don't hold a candle to my Christ. Don't let the riches and pleasures of this world keep you from identifying with Christ. Maybe you're here today and you think, maybe there is something to Jesus, maybe there's not. What is there? This world seems pretty comfortable. I'm I'm making a living. I'm, I'm basically a moral person. This preacher is telling me a story about Moses in Egypt, and I kind of get what he's saying, but I live in 2024. I live in the real world. Well, really, the call of Moses is before you today, friend. Because you live in a kind of Egypt, a world full of rebellion against its creator, a world full of people who are enslaved to sin in their hearts. They're bent in their wills and in their intellects and in their affections against God. But God sends a deliverer. But that deliverer is not going to deliver you and leave you in Egypt. He's going to bring you out, but not the country in North Africa. The sins that so easily entangle you. Deliverance comes because Christ bears the weight of all your sins. The sins which you've committed against God separate you from him. And you're under his wrath, his judgment for sin. But the true deliverer, Christ, comes and he brings you out of this Egypt of sin by carrying that burden on his own shoulders, dying a sacrificial death on the cross. And as he's hanging there, the triune God judges him for your sins, because your sins, if you're in Christ, were put on him. He bears the penalty, the judgment of God, just as if they were his own. So that all who have faith in him will be freed from the judgment of sin. And his perfect righteous life, a sinless life, the life that you are to live and don't, my faith is credited to, to you. It's as if you get his record and he gets yours. And now, if you're in Christ, even though you still wrestle with remaining sin, he sees you as perfectly righteous every day. And he remembers you by way of this covenant. So when you're wrestling with your sins, he sees you and remembers his covenant. It is enough. It is finished. The payment has been made. This is why, if you're not a believer, you need to understand that as long as you have life and breath in this life, the words of the Bible apply to you. Come to Christ, and he will bear the burden of your sins. Come to Christ, be freed from sins, and yes, many times, from the horrible effects that you already recognize in your life. The true and better Moses has come to free you. He does all the work, but if you'll allow me to say it this way, you can't stay in Pharaoh's palace. The second lesson. Moses concerns himself with the burdens of Christ's people. 
There's a practical lesson there for us. Moses is in a particular role that we're not. We're not called to be an earthly deliverer in some way to picture Christ to come, but there is an implication for us, and that is we should concern ourselves with the burdens of Christ's people. There he is, comfortably in the palace, and the burdens of God's people bother him. How often are you concerned with the burdens of Christ's people? Yes, the temporal burdens of week-to-week challenges that people are facing. But even the broadened worldwide burdens we prayed for even this morning in our pastoral prayer. The burdens that the gospel reach the ears of all the elect from every tribe, nation, and tongue. The burden of suffering Christians The burden of some people naming the name of Christ but not having a Bible in their own language to read. Concern yourself with the burdens of Christ's people. Thirdly, and we've already spoken of this, but we need to say it again, the burdens of this world are not a sign that God has forgotten his covenant. The burdens of this world are not a sign that God has forgotten his covenant. Notice they're groaning. So often in the pages of Scripture, we see this with Job, don't we? Here on earth, there's some kind of suffering, but we're given a picture, as it were, of heaven, of God, of God's mind and will. We're down here groaning. What is God doing? Hearing. Remembering, looking upon. Many of us have found in this life, we feel like we're making bricks in the Egypt of this world. When will God free us? We know that he's freed us at the cross. We believe that. We have hope in the Christ to come. We find ourselves singing, as it were, with the church in the book of the Revelation, Come, Lord Jesus. I don't want to make light of our sufferings. But, God hears. God remembers. God looks upon us. It will be soon. Lastly, just want to encourage you to see a picture that we see if we trace this story throughout the pages of Scripture, and that is Christ is the rescuer who provides water for the thirsty. You know, I think part of what's happening in Exodus chapter 2 is not that Moses happened to sit down by a well. And so later on, the living God will use this. Even this past week in my own small group, we had this discussion. If you ask me, beloved, the living God knew all along that one day Christ would sit down at a well with a lost and sinful woman and preach himself to her. 
So throughout the pages of the Old Testament, there's water at wells as a bride or a woman is saved. Here you have these daughters of rule. Moses comes along and he rescues them, just temporally. He rescues them from false shepherds. He waters their flock. How often in the pages of Scripture is our Christ called the true shepherd who provides living water? Christ is the true shepherd. He's the true and better Moses who doesn't water sheep but souls unto eternity. So have you sat down with the greater Moses, Jesus Christ? Have you seen that he knows all of your sins as he did that woman the well? Have you seen that he's offering to you living water through his own shed blood and righteous life? That's where this story is moving. Remember, Abraham, you're going to bless the nations through your seed. Jacob, Isaac, Moses, David, Solomon, prophets after the exile, he's coming from you. What is he going to do, Lord? He's going to bless the nations. What is the blessing, Lord? That they know me. That they know the Son. Christ is that rescuer. You know, one of the glories of reading the Old Testament as a Christian is that you just cannot get away, even if you try, from the fingerprints of Christ everywhere. Let's pray. Living God, we pray that the lessons of this text and the encouragements of our mind from it would encourage us this week. Help us to chew on this, Lord. To in the temptation of wanting to cling to the Egypt of this world, we remember who we are in Christ. And when the groaning of this life comes, Help us to remember that we, your people, believers who are united to Christ, are remembered by you in the covenant of grace. May these things drive our lives this week, living God. And if there is anyone here today who doesn't have the comfort of the covenant promises of God in the face of Jesus Christ, would you open their souls in keeping with your will? Grant them faith that they too may join the family of God, crying out to the Savior who will receive them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.